my household, there's always a, as soon as kind of fall starts, there's always a looking forward to the setup of Christmas. I know that there is another family sitting in this general area that is even more excited about setting up for Christmas than most. But one of the rules for me growing up, and it's continued in our house, is that we, we hold off until after Remembrance Day, where we are at Remembrance Day looking back and remembering the things that God has done through these men and women of the armed forces who sacrificed and worked so hard to care for our, our country and to take care of their fellow man. But there's this sense of we are remembering, we're looking backwards, and then we come into Christmas time and we're looking forwards and we are excited to celebrate the things that God has done. And today I am particularly in the excited and celebrating mood. Um, last night and yesterday, Sherry and I got to go to a, a wedding in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. It was a lot of driving and round trip through the snow and the ice and the sleet, but it was a youth of mine that I'd worked with as an intern in Meadow Lake who came to our church as a kid who knew nothing about Jesus and throughout our time there came to know Christ and went on a missions trip and then went to Bible college and now is getting is married to a man going into ministry. And I look and just see the incredible working of God in his ministry and the fact that I only had a small part to play in that. I had a piece of it. But seeing how God, through myself and through the associate pastor that was there at the time and so many other people, God has worked to do good things and has worked to affect her heart and draw her to himself was a very exciting and joyful time for me. And I don't know whether it's the, the Christmas spirit kind of starting or what, but for me it's a real joyful time. And then this morning I'm sitting in church and I get to see a new visitor to our church who is not a visitor but now a church family member getting to see Bell and Sito come with little Tabitha, and it's exciting for me to see the, the work of God even amongst our own people. And I hope that you, like myself, can be excited about both what God has done over the history, the many, many years past, the recent history, the years and months past, and that we can be excited about what he's doing now and what he is yet to do. And that's going to play significantly into what we're going to be talking about from the book of Nahum today. But as we get into Nahum, I want to recognize that across the ages, there's always been a human fascination with these hero stories whether it's the modern trend of the superhero from the comic books or what have you, whether it's the mythical heroes of civilization's past, historical giants, heroes of 
the faith or heroes of social awareness and reform, or even just modern-day heroes. Look at tycoons of business or people who have just changed the world through one thing or another. But there's always been this fascination with, with heroes throughout humanity. From the second of the fall, we as mankind have recognized that ultimately we need a hero. We need a defender in the face of a fallen world. And here in the church, we recognize that this desire for a hero stems from our need for a spiritual savior. And that no hero, whether fictional or real, can fill that void. That it can only be resolved in the Lord. The very curse that was leveled upon the serpent, Satan, is the beginning of humanity's desire for a hero. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, our hero was to come from the offspring of the woman, foreshadowing of Christ. And throughout the interim, waiting upon Christ, God continues to contend and care for His people. Our first passage in Nahum verses 1-8 to served as a reminder of the character of Yahweh, the hero of the Hebrew people, the champion that they needed in their time of distress. And sometimes the idea of a hero gets kind of falsely tied to the world of fiction. But in its simplest form, a hero is one who is admired for doing or achieving great things. And our God is one who is rightly to be admired, for He has done the greatest of things. And all things, all good things, come through Him. But in every hero story, one of the major points of interest is the, the conflict. And the hero's attributes shine when their particular gifts or skills are particularly recognized as being needed. Where there's a crisis that can't be resolved through any normal means and someone has to step in to save the day. We know that the fact that we woke up this morning depended entirely upon God. We know the fact that the universe still exists, depends on Him, and that He transcends the attempts to define Him as the hero of anyone's story besides the one of His own authorship. But it's a beautiful thing that God's glory, His attributes shine all the clearer in the face of our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here in Nahum, the Lord and His character have been introduced, and the weakness of mankind obviously needs no introduction in our passage today. The Assyrians were an insurmountable force for Judah and the Lord's people. 
and they are well aware that they are in need of divine aid. And then we come to this declaration of the Lord, kind of a how, how dare you passage. What is about to come, the judgment that is about to befall Nineveh, it comes down to what is described in our passage here. The people of the Lord need one who would contend for their cause. They recognize their need for the Lord that He would give them aid. I say all this because we need to remember that and be reminded that this oracle is designed to comfort God's people. That they might see the God who is about to save them. I want us to try and view this passage from the perspective of one oppressed, a helpless victim facing impossible odds, an overwhelming adversary, suddenly defended by the one that they had prayed would come and save them. They are about to find and refind their hope and salvation in God. I ask that you would read with me Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and we will be running into chapter 2, verse 2. In Nahum, 1, Nahum chapter 1, verses 9 through 2, verse 2. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns. Like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you, Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. This is God's Word. This passage, like much of Nahum, carries that two-pronged message of the pronunciation of God's character and His greatness and His salvation for His people, and that this was great news to His people and terrible news to His enemies. The judgment of Nineveh and the salvation of His people, and in particular, the people of Judah. The first section of this morning's passage is Nahum's first real address against Nineveh. What is the purpose of this oracle? What proclamation does Nahum have against the Assyrian capital? The ESV says, starts with, what do you plot against the Lord? 
Honestly, I don't love that translation. If you look at most other translations that I looked at, rather than what do you plot against the Lord, most other ones say whatever you plot against the Lord. There is no ambiguity here. It doesn't matter what the Assyrians have plotted. The judgment has been made. The gavel has landed. And this is the sentence about to be pronounced by the righteous judge. Whatever the Assyrians have planned, those plans are doomed as are they. The Lord against whom the Assyrians had plotted has determined he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. The Assyrians were originally used by God as a tool to correct his people. We can find that as well as another woe pronounced against Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah 10, 5, it says, Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil and seize the plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Assyria was sent by God to correct his people, to chastise them, but not to destroy them. God allowed the Invasion and the dispersion and the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. They had proven themselves to be faithless. But this was not enough for the Assyrians. It was in their heart to continue to expand, to utterly destroy God's people. The Assyrian king Sennacherib sent to conquer Judah and Jerusalem in the same manner that he had conquered Israel and its capital of Samaria. He even defies God mocking him, saying he'll be able to un- unable to save Jerusalem just as the other gods of the other nations he'd conquered were unable to save their cities. But God would not allow this. He would not let his people be destroyed, and he would not allow his name to be scorned. In 2 Kings 19, we can read, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Little do the wicked know that even their own wicked plans are used by the Lord to accomplish his own purposes. Assyria was allowed to come so far, but no further. And once they had overstepped their bounds, it came time for God's divine retribution. And here again, they approach that precipice. That time has come. 
prophet Isaiah said Assyria wouldn't prevail against Jerusalem. And Nahum says that whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. And to drive this home, he compares the Assyrians to thorns or to a drunkard's drink or to a dry stubble in a field. The thorns were to be torn up and to be burned totally. The drunkard's drink would be drank to the last drop, not a drop left in there. The stubble of a field, if you've ever seen a field of stubble go up on fire, it is quick and it is total and there is nothing left. Brothers and sisters, I want us to get the sense that our God is not powerless. He does not lose control. Nothing is outside of His power or His divine will. Whatever the world would plot against our Lord and His people, the Lord will make a complete end of it. God may use wicked nations or wicked men to complete and accomplish His goals, but when the dust settles, there will be no ambiguity about whose plans it is that have been accomplished. And this is good news for us today. If any of us turn on the news for even a second or look at many situations in our own lives, we see a wicked world rapidly turning astray. Evil that is rampant in every corner of our culture. The church does not seem to be the social powerhouse that it once was driving the, the culture. God's people are ridiculed and even dragged before the courts for their convictions. Around the world, over a dozen Christians are killed every day for their trust in their God, martyred for their faith. This level of wickedness and darkness could very easily become overwhelming to us. But like I said last week, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. God is bringing about a complete end. Even as the wicked pursue their plans, their plans will only work towards the ends that God has designed. They are only working towards the ends of the God that they themselves despise. That brings us to the center of our passage this morning, verses 12 to 14. This is God's proclamation, the sum of what is to come against Nineveh and for his people. And I encourage us as we read this that we kind of watch the pronouns going on here because Nahum very, very quickly switches back and forth between Assyria and God's faithful people with not a huge signpost between each. Let's read verse 12 to 14. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. So we have two kind of parallel things going on here. A judgment being leveled at Assyria and a 
promise for God's people. Towards Assyria, God says that though you are at full strength and many, you will be cut down and pass away. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. And this last line, I will make your grave, for you are vile. When we look at verse 2, we need to recognize this full strength and the many that is being talked about here as far as Assyria go. This is numbers in the hundreds of thousands. An army unlike anything else the world had ever seen. Charioteers, one of the first cavalry forces ever fielded on, on the field of battle. Assyria was the modern-day unstoppable superpower. But almost flippantly, our passage says, you will be cut down. You will, be, you will pass away. And this is not going to be a defeat to recover from. It will not be like the defeat when Assyria had come against Jerusalem and Assyria would run back to Nineveh with their tail between their legs only to come back bigger and badder. This would be a defeat akin to the scorched earth policy that Assyria had pursued with Samaria and Israel. There would be nothing left. A complete end was to be made. No one would be left to continue their lineage even their gods would be cut off from the face of the earth. This is the end, and you will be forgotten. Assyria had suffered its defeats in the past, there would be, but there would be no future coming back from this one. And tucked in that promise of destruction is a message of hope for God's people. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I'll break his yoke from off of you, and I will burst your bonds apart. Amid this coming destruction, God's people are not forgotten. They will not be caught up in God's judgment. Too often we get caught up in the nice and comfortable conception of God, the loving and caring and kind, that it becomes hard for us to imagine that he would afflict anyone, that he even has any wrath. But we have made clear in our look at the beginning of chapter 1 that God is more than capable of this terrifying role. And against his faithless people, he brought the affliction of the Assyrian oppression. And he had brought it against them to correct them. Most parents wouldn't classify themselves as scary people. I also imagine, or I would hope, that most children wouldn't look at their parents and call them scary people. But when it comes time to dispense discipline, there is a right and holy fear of a child. A fear that comes with knowing that we have done wrong and that a consequence is forthcoming. I've mentioned before a favorite song of mine when I was a kid, Daddy's Hands by Holly Dunn. And it goes, the daddy's hands were soft and kind when I was crying, and daddy's hands were hard as steel when I'd done wrong. They weren't always gentle, but we've come to understand that there was always love in daddy's hands. 
The hand of the Lord is not always gentle towards his children, but he has always shown incredible love towards his people. Without fail, God has preserved his own people. He has cared for them. He has loved them even in the discipline that he brought against them. But against the ones who would dare cross a father's child, there was no gentleness and love, only fearful judgment. The old joke of a father sitting on the front porch cleaning a shotgun when the boyfriend shows up is, is a great one. But there's definitely an element of truth there. If a daughter were to sneak out with a boy, you can bet that when the daughter comes home, there wouldn't be a whole bunch of real kind, soft affection towards the girl. There would be some consequences leveled. There would be a hardness to daddy's response in that moment. But that would be nothing in comparison to the response to that boy if he would dare be caught in bringing the daughter home. The wrath against that boy, that one who would dare meddle with the family, is totally different. God did afflict his people. He afflicted his people in judgment and in correction, wanting to bring them back to himself, remind them of their need for him, remind them of how they should live and their dependence upon him. But against Nineveh, there was none of that softness. God is about to bring a permanent end upon Assyria. And I love when it's talking about the bonds that are to be broken, the yoke that is about to be burst. There is no putting those back together. It's not, well, I will remove your bonds or I will loosen them. I will not take the yoke off of you. I will burst them. I will tear them off of you and there will be no putting them back on. This is final. The Assyrians were no longer going to afflict God's people. And imagine the good news that this comes as to a people that have been afflicted on and off by these people for hundreds of years. They had seen what happened to Israel and Samaria. They had fought wars against the Assyrians when they came to attempt to take Jerusalem. And finally, God was going to bring about a total end. For us today, our eyes should be turned towards our future hope. We know that we do battle against our own sin, our own wickedness, the sin and wickedness of the world that surrounds us, the difficulties that we face in this life every day. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day there will be no more death and no more tears. There will be no more sorrow for God's people. But that day will also be a day when there will be nothing but death. 
an eternal death for those who have rejected the Savior, who have set themselves up against the Lord's people. It's that image of the sheep and the goats. For the sheep of God's pasture, there will be an eternal rest. Green fields forever, it would be the greatest thing that we can imagine and something that we can look forward to. Our blessed hope. But for the goats, there is an eternal grave. God will send them to forever for their vileness and their wickedness has come up before Him and their punishment has come due. And do not miss who it is that accomplishes these things. God's people do not take off their own yoke. God's people do not break their own bonds of their own strength. The Lord breaks their bonds. The Lord takes off the yoke that they have been subjected to and shatters it. And just so we cannot manufacture our own salvation, we cannot do it alone. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the final verses of our passage, the the language changes again. Instead of the Lord has said, now it's kind of the divinely inspired commentary of Nahum. And verse 15 and following say, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. This is a beautiful summary of what God is about to do. Judah has been waiting with bated breath for answers to their cries and prayers. Could you imagine living in Judah and seeing the Assyrians sweep down and make a complete ruin of Israel and Samaria, a country that used to be a part of your country, a country that you used to call also a part of God's people. You see this wicked nation come in and just completely decimate them and send them to every corner of the known world. And then you see those same people turn their sights towards you. They come and attempt to attack Jerusalem and they're sent back home, but they are preparing again to come after you. Would God come and deliver them? Or would they be overrun just as the Assyrians had done to so many other nations before? Then there's this image of a messenger coming across the mountains overlooking Jerusalem, bringing the good news. They are saved. Their defender, their hero is coming. They are to be saved. And what is their response to be? How are they supposed to react to this good news? God tells them, keep your feasts and fulfill your vows. To keep their feasts accomplishes three things. These 
festivals or feasts throughout the Old Testament would have called to mind God's historic faithfulness, helping to remember what God had done in the past. It would be times to celebrate God's present deliverance, what He is doing even now among His people. And there would be time to be encouraged about the hope and the future that God has promised. Past, present, and future. God is good. And He has, He is, and He will take care of His people. He pronounces this encouragement to Judah and then again turns his eyes towards Nineveh. I can't help but be reminded of the taunting tone that the Assyrian kings had taken towards God, saying, you won't be able to save your people. Nahum says to them, begin whatever preparations for battle you want. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. Get ready, for the scatterer is coming. It doesn't matter what you do. Your judgment is settled. The Lord is about to scatter you and cut you off and make a complete end of you, even as you had tried to do to God's people. Get ready, but it's not going to do anything. Why is God doing this? Why are they to be scattered? Because the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Again, we are being reminded that God is about to do what He wills. He is restoring His people. Now that His people have been appropriately chastised and humbled, now that they once again recognize their total and utter dependence upon God, the Lord is about to restore them. They have suffered much. They have received great judgment, and now God will save them. I keep being brought back to the importance of these feasts in verse 15. No matter the afflictions that God's people have faced When they come together, they remember what God has done. And part of that is they will remember how God has rescued them in their distress. We are going to face times of distress in our own lives. On Friday, many of us participated in some manner of Remembrance Day observance. The whole point of those services are to Remember the sacrifices that have been made on our behalf. The valor of heroes that we have depended on and by which our country and its people have been protected. Its values have been protected. These men and women of the armed forces have laid down their lives that their country might be saved, that evil might not prosper, and that their friends and families and countrymen might have a future. But after any war, there is an obvious time of restoration. It takes decades to rebuild. But part of the motivation of that rebuilding and that continued existence is the memory of what has come before. The price that was paid to even give such an opportunity. 
In our passage, Yahweh is about to contend on behalf of his people, and the conflict is not even going to be close. There is nothing that Nineveh can do to stand against him. And what are the people of Judah meant to be doing? They are meant to return to their feasts, to remember again that past, present, and future, God has, is, and will take care of his own people. Brothers and sisters, it's good that we should take time yearly to remember with fondness and pride the selfless sacrifice of the men and women who have laid down their lives for their country and for their people. It's a good thing. But even more importantly, we come together every week on the Lord's Day to remember a Savior who has laid down his life only to take it back up again. Victorious over even death itself. And even as God's people, when they were receiving the message from Nahum, they were in an in-between period. Judgment and salvation is pronounced against Assyria, but that salvation had not yet come. They're waiting for it. They're excited for it, but they're still in that in-between period. We too are in such a day. The end of sin and death has been accomplished. In Christ's work on the cross, he has finished his work, and he is now ruling at the right hand of God the Father. Satan and his minions have been utterly defeated. Past tense, it is done. And yet the final defeat hasn't played out yet. We look forward to the day where we, as God's people, can see a world where the world is restored, where God is ruling and reigning in every facet of his creation, and we can see his work. But even now, we must remember. We must keep our feasts. We must remember that God is good, and he has, is, and will care for his people. We have good memories of God's faithfulness in the past, and we can see his good work in the present. And we eagerly anticipate the hope that he has given us, the future he has given us. And in the meantime, we remain faithful. We place our trust in him, and we wait for the final salvation that is going to be accomplished at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Lord makes it clear that no one, and no one who stands against him will stand. He will bring to a complete end whatever they plot against him. It will be for nothing. It will only be used by him to accomplish his own ends. And that is good news for us as God's people. Because whatever evil and wickedness we face in our own world, in our own day, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to, we should just float through life. It's going to be difficult. We live in a sinful and broken world. But we have the promise that this is not what we have to look forward to. We have the promise that this world with its pain and its suffering and its difficult, difficulty and its trials, that is not what we are waiting for. We are waiting for the day when there will be no more tears and no more suffering. 
There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be no more wicked people afflicting God's people. We will not turn on the news and see no end of evil and wickedness and faithlessness against God. We will know our Savior face to face. Our faith will become sight. And even creation itself, as we discussed in our Sunday school time, I think it was last week, even creation itself will be healed. And that is what we have to look forward to. And we need to be motivated as God's people to let people know that there is a complete end coming, that there is an end of opportunity where God will not be patient forever, and when his patience is out, it is out. So now is the time to place our faith in Christ and respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. So let's carry that message everywhere we go. The message of God's faithfulness, the reason why we keep our feasts, but also the reason why God's people have every right to live in terror of the judgment of God. As we close this morning, let us leave here knowing that whatever wicked powers that this world can field against God and his people, that we have an ultimate hope that he will and has put those plots to a complete end. Let us know what God has done, all the while remaining faithful to him, and our trust bolstered by the remembrance of what he has done. I'll leave us with the words of Paul to Titus in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. I believe the worship team has a closing song for us. So as they come, I ask that you would join with me in prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we look around ourselves and in this world and we know that there is no end of evil and wickedness. And Lord, we thank you that we do not have to wonder what the end of that wickedness is. We do not have to wonder how the battle between good and evil plays out, Lord. We know that you will accomplish your ends. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you would give us the faith to trust you in that even when we cannot see how you will accomplish good even through the work of evil men. Lord, give us the faith that is required to remain fixed upon you. Remain fixed upon your work and what you have done and what you are doing and what you will continue to do. May we as your people trust you and the deliverance that you have promised. 
Lord, go with us. Help us to live lives that are in accordance with your word and your will. And may we go forth from this place proclaiming our hope and warning the world of the judgment that is to come that people might hear and know and be saved by the working of your Holy Spirit upon their hearts. May we be those who bear good news. For we have been the recipients of such good news in our own hearts and our own lives. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your word and for your people. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.